Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. My name is Joe Armstrong, and this is Independence Day, the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Casper Sonnet. Experimental art can be an acquired taste, but once it gets into your head, nothing else will do. Classical composer John Cage built a career on doing things differently, and the Beatles transformed from a garage band ripping off Chuck Berry to the biggest band that ever was by experimenting with just how far a pop song could be pushed into unknown sonic territory. Casper Sonnet's music exists in a world that is at least partially free of the conventions of what most people recognize as pop music. In Sonnet's world, song structures do not conform to traditional verse-chorus-verse-chorus forms, and melodies are juxtaposed against a richer harmonic palette than most ears find familiar. Listening to Casper Sonnet's music can be jarring at first, but if listeners have the courage to abandon comfortable conventions, there is a discordant beauty lurking below the surface. It helps that Sonnet is talented enough to both sing his angular melodies and accompany himself on instruments that have been modified to fit into his moldless mold. Ukuleles are played through amplifiers with a bevy of effects. A lap slide dobro is played in a manner that is anything but blues, and guitars are prepared in ways similar to the manner in which avant-garde classical composers modify instruments to evoke sounds that their inventors likely could never have dreamed possible. So open your ears and expand your mind to a new definition of what music can be, because Casper Sonnet will take you there if you're willing to tag along. Welcome to Independence Day, Casper Sonnet. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing very, very well. I mean, I, I feel like I should address you as Casper, but you actually have a name. You perform under a stage name. Yeah, stage name is Casper uh, Sonnet, but my friends just call me Ruby. Yeah. Short for Ruben. Right, we're talking D. Ruben Snyder. But you have a D. first Ruben initial. D. Ruben Snyder, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so the cops know you as whatever the D is. D. Ruben. Right, exactly. Or <laughs> teachers on the first day, always. Because I, I have a first initial, too. Uh-huh. And oh, really? Like, and cool. the, it's actually also D. We'll, we'll preserve the element of mystery. We yeah, won't, we let's won't, do we that. We won't define what those are. <laughs> but it's like, you know, so that's, I was always called by my middle name from the get-go. So when, uh, you know, I'm not a junior. Whoa. But there is a D. And when I'm, you know, like teachers on the first day. Yeah. Know me as that D. D, And yeah. like cops, because that's what it has to say in my license. Although, <laughs> Illinois, when I lived in Illinois, Illinois let me put my middle name, which is my name that everyone knows me as, yeah. on my license. California won't do it. Weird. Oh, interesting. The bastards. Hmm. Anyway, you are... Uh, a very unique kind of avant-garde experimental style artist. Like yeah. You play songs that are kind of broken down in structure, and I don't mean like old and broken down, yeah, I mean like, deconstructed. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, non-traditional maybe would be a better way to say that. Yeah. So, you know, what define what that is, like from your perspective. What does that even mean? Well, uh, I think that a lot of like the structures and a lot of things that are happening is um, a lot of my um, own private training, um, composing music for chamber ensembles and stuff like that um, before I started writing songs. Uh, I, I have a long history of like writing some pretty crazy stuff and studying a lot of, of European composers, like, you know, like, uh, Shajri Legedy, Shajri Kurtog, American composers, uh, Morton Feldman, John Cage has prepared pianos most namely. It was really a big influence of mine. Uh, it's, it's just a lot, it's just all over the map, you know, from Hungary to, Schoenberg, Webern, Berg, you know, even the German guys. So it's just like I studied a lot of like pretty crazy stuff. And then, um, and then I uh, had a lot of life changes and then started writing songs. And I guess kind of like trying to figure out a way to bring those elements into songwriting. And I do like music that's a little challenging and interesting. I mean, you know, uh, 
you know, also some elements of free jazz. You know, I loved Ornette Coleman and Eric Dolphy. I studied alto saxophone and bass monk, maybe a little years. monk in there because definitely he's very some, experimental. Definitely a Thelonious Monk. He was a he was actually one of the first jazz records I got when um or tape when I was uh, in high school. You know, and then Ornette Coleman and I listened to a lot of John Zorn when I was in high school. Now, really when you say studied, are you using that in the traditional academic yeah, sense? Did I, yeah, you go I studied, to school? Yeah, for this? I, stu- I didn't go to school. Um, I did not go to school. I'm mostly self taught. Um, but. I worked at a sheet music company in Portland, Oregon, and I bought thousands of dollars of scores. And so I would get these scores and I would have the music and then I would just study and read along. And then, you know, obviously, and I taught myself how to read piano music and how to compose and how to write it. And um, it's just kind of how it went, you know, so very unorthodox kind of way of uh, going about it. Now, are you are you a trained musician in the sense that, like most people, if they pick up a score, that means they can actually read music? Did you mm-hmm. were you trained on a specific instrument that you could then look at that and, and like understand what that meant, or are you just kind of following along like with your own musical language? Well, I I mean I it's, it's a little convoluted in some way because I mean the instrument that I was using during that time was keyboard. And so I could sight read and play the piano, but you know, not that fluently, you know, I wrote faster. I composed faster than I played. So it was very strange like that. But, um, uh, but I, I, I did study orchestration in a sense. I know that a bassoon will sound really loose and floppy if it's at a low E. Right. You know, the range of the instrument. Yeah. It's going to be like, so knowing, Know thy instrument, as Stravinsky would say, is definitely a key thing for me. So when I write my music, I'm very sensitive to timbres, and timbres is so important for the mood, you know? Yeah, and then such a big thing when you talk about this style of music that's composed, whether it's pop music mm-hmm. or classical music, avant-garde music, mm-hmm. arranging is the key thing there, because you can write yeah. a song, like, you know, there's the idea of, like, you can dress a song up however you want to dress it up. Like you can take like uh, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco was someone who Mm -hmm. went pretty far down that road where, you know, he would write kind of Dylan-esque kind of folk rock songs. Mm -hmm. But then he got to a point in his career, Jeff Tweedy of Wilco we're talking about here, he got to a point in his career where that wasn't enough for him just to play those songs that way. So the heart of the song might still be that simple kernel of a a melody and chord change Mm versus chorus, whatever. But the way he then smashed it, broke it apart and reassembled it in a more avant-garde fashion. Yeah. But the arranging so cool. is where that gold is. And is that yeah. is that something that's true for you as well? Yeah, yeah, a bit, yeah. It's just, uh, well, th- in the development of my songs, <laughs> they're very strange because they happen by accident and they happen, I'm kind of in a trance when I write the songs. It's very strange. I sing in tongue before I interpret okay. lyrics. Yeah, well, that's uh, we do that. My buddy, uh, my buddies I write with, we call it just meow meow. Uh-huh. We'll just say meow 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 meow, like as we're singing the melody because right, we may not have right. they're, they're placeholder lyrics for lyrics that we will mm-hmm. eventually fill in. But we've got a melody and we've got a harmonic structure and we've got mm-hmm. a melodic structure that works with that. But mm-hmm. you know, so that's a pretty normal thing. But I noticed, you know, and in some of your music, listening to yours, you actually kind of keep those vocalizations. Sometimes. Yeah, I do. It's it's like when you listen, and I'm thinking about releasing that music because. When you hear it, you know, you, you can't even tell that I'm singing. This sounds like I'm either singing in Esperanto or I'm singing a different language or I'm singing actual words. But when I'm singing in tongue, I'm actually singing something from my subconscious. You know, yeah. so there's not a, you know, and, and I'm also very sensitive to the vowels and to the shapes of the words, you know, and to the rhythms and the sounds. And so, yeah, I do bring that kind of, that kind of like dabbling, experimental, you know, nuance yeah. into this way of singing too and there's you know? your challenge man i want you to write a song in esperanto dude like, I, I, think, totally, I think that should be your next thing i actually want to learn spanish and actually start singing in spanish i've had i found these weird mexican mexican uh, folk records from mexico 
And I was like, wow, that's so cool listening to that language. Like, it would be nice. Frank Black does it from time to time, but it would be nice to sing in Spanish. Although, if you're really trying to be experimental, but, I really think you should be singing in either German or like liturgical Slavonic. Yeah. Because it'll sound way more. Slavonic. It'll sound more Slavonic like appropriate. is pretty weird. I've heard that. But, but Esperanza is pretty good because it's a mixture of all of those. <laughs> yeah, Rachmaninoff. We used to sing Rachmaninoff in college choir, in high school choir, too. Oh, you know, Daisponia, like it's uh, the, the, the sure. Baltic languages. That's some yeah. serious business there. In any case, I'm talking to the artist Casper Sonnet. He's an avant-garde style songwriter based here in Los Angeles by way of Oregon. Uh, he's got a relatively, you've got some new music coming out relatively soon. Yes, I do. Uh, September is going to be the release of this record called Colotus, which is uh, a small town outside of where I grew up, which is in Kennewick, Washington. And following Colotus, I'm hoping by the fall to release one of three, a triptych, um, it's called um, The Kennewick Man. I think she's called Kennewick Man 1, 2, and 3. So I'm hoping to release that sometime in the fall. So there's two records, uh, Colotus um, in the early fall, and then hopefully later on, Kennewick Man. Very ambitious. All right. I haven't. They're all there. They're All the songs are there. It's just having to mix them. Yeah. All right. Well, you're, on, you're almost there, man. Let's hear a track uh, from, is this the most recent record? Identify, is that the most recent record? Identify, yeah. Okay, let's hear a track from that. This is the track Restless. The artist is Casper Sonnet here on Independence Day.
You're listening to Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong. I'm sitting with the artist Casper Sonnet, who is a man and kind of a band at the same time, too. His most recent record, Identify, came out on Marriage Records in 2012. That was the track Restless. Very cool stuff, man. Thanks. Very indie. Very you know, I, indie is kind of a word that's bandied about and kind of tossed around. But <laughs> you, a good you, word, you, you're you're far beyond just indie. Like you, yeah. the type of music that you do, you're actually kind of challenging your audience a little bit. Yeah, it's also challenging myself too. Yeah, and it's certainly that's the best way to go with it. So now you do a lot of c- collaborating as well. Like, mm-hmm. where do you draw the line between the stuff that you do, the music, the material that's Casper Sonnet, and the things you do with other collaborations? Or, or is Casper Sonnet? Do you have people collaborate with you on that as well? Or is that kind of entirely your excuse me, entirely your own thing? I'm trying to. I don't know. I'm, I've been on the fence about that. I've been like thinking like, well. D. Ruben Snyder, my me, myself, my composer self, you know, should I put that element in there? And it's just like, uh, I kind of view maybe having that when I'm much older, but Casper Sonnet's pretty much the the main focus of it, you know, because it is, uh, it's just what it is. Um, uh, just an uh, alternate identity. Um, but right now I'm working with uh, a dance crew and I'm doing some music for them for, um, acoustic lap steel and ukulele, but it's going to be way weirder and I'm not necessarily going to be singing and playing timpanis too as well. Um, so yeah, I, I love to collaborate too, but it's just been more of a solo thing too. So, and if this other collaboration I'm doing is in, is in this band called Rob Walmart, um, which is in Portland, Oregon and kind of spread out. It's an, it's an electronic type of avant-garde, um, ironic type of music thing. I do that too, but not really that much these days. No, but when you collaborate with people like that who are far away, do you just kind of send tracks back and forth and add things, subtract things, like send rough tracks? Like how do you go about doing it? Technology must facilitate that. Um, yeah, I, I do I do enjoy the um, the, t- the um, correspondence a lot because it like, gives a person a time to kind of digest what their move is and then make the, the, the next move. And ha- but when you're working with them together, you know, I kind of miss that element because right now I'm doing another project with Casper Sonnet where I'm working with a guy who plays bowed saw. He's been studying it for three, 35 years, bowing huge saws, and he's also a really good theremin. So I'm trying to figure out a way to work with him. And they're similar. They, the sound of those two yeah, instruments is similar. Very similar. So I miss that like that live um, type of atmosphere. And it's like that with the dancers too. But with the technology these days, um, I do. It is it is really enjoyable to have to do the correspondence because it's like you you're waiting for their move, and it's kind of like waiting for an awesome package to show up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you so I, I guess an idea originates with one of you, mm-hmm. and then you send it to them, mm-hmm. and they kind of muck about with it for a week, two yeah. weeks, whatever, and then they add some stuff and send it back. Has there ever been a point where the stuff they sent back, you're like, man, that just sucks. Or hmm, yeah, you know, where do yeah. you draw the line in terms of that? Uh, um, well, you have to do it. <laughs> we have to be nice, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I don't know. It's, I I just it just try to be really constructive about the criticism of the idea that didn't really work out, and and usually it's no problem. But man, sometimes it's just I seem to have I don't really have a problem trying to convey what I'm looking for or something. It's just uh, sometimes it just usually translates really well. I don't really have too many problems. Yeah. No, but the I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, once someone sends you their stuff, because mm-hmm. that's the thing about art and when you're collaborating with anyone, whether it's mm-hmm. songwriting, mixing, visual art, whatever, uh, you kind of have to check your ego at the door. 
Oh yeah, you, know, to you make lose it, control. You you know, and yeah. you you have to seed some of that control away. Yeah, and then you know, then that becomes that's a catchphrase. But the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's yeah, the whole agreed. point of collaboration. Agreed. Uh, but it seems like I mean, obviously, if you're working with them, you've got a good enough relationship, both creatively and personally. Yeah, we could speak openly and say like, okay. "Oh, that's not good," you know, or yeah. or you know what I mean. I guess There's I'm a line from think. Spinal Tap I'm thinking right now, but it's oh, got yeah, a vulgar word in it. But I'm not going to say it. Uh, so now, but now, but <laughs> now to backtrack, the other part of that question was when you're doing, you know, Casper Sonnet, you as that as that persona, mm-hmm. is that all you completely? Yeah, my record is all me. I performed every instrument. Um, I didn't use much uh, MIDI or anything like that. Uh, even the keyboard had a Yamaha DX150. I played that live um, on the song Steeds. All, I mean, yeah, I'd like, it, I had a very strange process when I made that first record. Okay. But there's some drum, some of the music I heard on your website, which is caspersonnet.com, actually. And you, people can also drop, there's a few other places. Let's just mm-hmm. get this out of the way right now. Caspersonnet.com, C A S P A R, Sonnet, S O N N et.com facebook.com slash casper sonnet and also twitter.com casper sonnet people can drop by all these places and see what they need to see hear what they need to hear but there's some drum loops on there too yeah i perform all the drums i perform every instrument i okay. to be quite honest with you i have not collaborated with a living soul now when you project. say perform are you actually playing the drums and no, then performing is when i have to hire a drummer and stuff like that and that's when the the lose control has to happen and the try to the collaboration and i always love that because yeah. They're always going to bring something exciting and you know, something different, yeah. you know. No, but specifically, I mean, when you say perform, mm-hmm. right? Because those sound like loops to me. Like, uh, oh thing. yeah, there's like, loops. Are you? Oh, yeah, okay. Because you're you're not. Because yeah. I've, I've done it both ways. I've used a drum loop that was mm-hmm. a pre-purchased mm-hmm. loop that sounded like it yeah. was going yeah. to sound, and you just play as many measures as you mm-hmm. want, and then maybe they give you a fill or whatever. Or I've actually made loops in the studio where I had a drummer or me or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. come in and play, and then mm-hmm, chop mm-hmm. that up, make a loop out of it. So you you were using loops. Yeah, then. I would do. I would do. I would use drums i would create a loop um with drums or some sort of thing and then i would bring that and either plug my ipod into a di and um i would sometimes create a set on a big a big fat wave file of my set and so i'd have the drum loop i'd play and i'd know internally that when the loop was done i'd have this much room for another song but yeah i would i would bring that I would, I would bring the sequence with me and have that played in the pa okay for a live show you for live shows i've done that yeah okay uh, let's hear a little bit of what this sounds like if you're doing some performing here what's this for you've got a, you've got some instruments here you got a couple different instruments what's this first track going to be that you're going to play this first track is wendigo's ruin um i play baritone ukulele singing some light percussion it's a pretty minimal type of song i did it for a compilation called sentences on conceptual art um, and, uh, it was a fun little project and it's about, um, it's about a, actually a native American, um, demon, uh, a, uh, it's a, a kind of a werewolf, a Wendigo, almost like a zombie like a slash chupacabra kind of thing. Yeah. It's like a slash zombie slash werewolf. It's very interesting. And so, um, it's, uh, that's what the song's kind of about. And, uh, it's a really spooky song. I like, it's actually one of my favorite songs. All right. Well, let's hear Casper Sonnet play one of his favorite songs here on Independence Day. So happy to have him.
is blowing the pleasant trees of all the peasants shuffling in every devotion. Ha ha he run away Ha ha he run up Joe Armstrong. You're listening to Independence Day. I bring you artists from around the country and around the world every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific time. We've been on a short break. We kind of took some of the summer off, but it just had to happen. We needed some break in the the hot weather, and uh, there's some traveling in there. Got to see Monty Python. Yeah. So I can, I can report that those guys are still funny, as old as they are. Yeah. Uh, but I'm back here in the States. We're back under production with Independence Day. I'm sitting with the artist Casper Sonnet, who's kind of an avant-garde singer-songwriter type as evidenced by that song you just played, man. Good stuff. Hey, thanks, man. Good stuff. I like it. And like the, you're doing very unusual things. You're using you know, the ukulele in a very unique way. Like most people are singing over the rainbow or whatever they're doing with the ukulele. Yeah, they're it's all happy strumming, beat strumming, stuff. yeah. But you're doing a thing where you've got a, you've got an, uh, a pickup in it and you're running it through an amplifier mm-hmm. and yeah, you've got K&K. some effects on it, some mm-hmm. different stuff. So, uh, and, But I guess that just kind of fits in with what you're trying to do is taking something that might be traditional mm-hmm. and changing it, warping yeah. it, making it your own. Yeah, it's also like something I want to mention is um, I'm really obsessed 
about trying to make instruments sound like other instruments. I'm very obsessed with that for some reason. Like, for example, the ukulele for Wendigos. And my general playing style, I try to make it sound like a harp because I yeah. love harp music. I'm so into like concert harp. Harp, not harmonica, but harp in the orchestra. <laughs> but um, yeah, I play it in this open tuning kind of way, you know, finger. Yeah, yeah there's something, uh, we learned this in the physics of music class. I mean, every, every sound has what's called ADSR. Attack, decay, sustain, and release are yeah. the four aspects of any sound, any musical instrument, right? And what we learned in that class, and this is kind of a cool trivia thing for people, is that if you take away the attack and you just listen to uh, the sustain yeah. of, a, of an instrument, oh, yeah. most instruments sound like other instruments. Yeah. It's the attack that gives it that unique character and then the overtone series as well. And then oh the wave, God. it's a decay. Yeah. So that's something that, you know, try that sometime. Like when you're recording something, yeah. chop off the, the attack, of it, of it, which is the attack meaning the, where you pluck yeah, it oh, yeah. or hammer it or where mm -hmm, the, the mm -hmm. uh, where the sound starts, mm -hmm. and then the release, of course, becomes decay. So just an interesting musical tidbit. Yeah, yeah, something that's you can fascinating mess with. Stuff. Um, tell me a little bit about. Uh, I'm wildly curious because you do all the stuff you, yourself. You make all these. You know, you, you record these instruments yourself. Mm -hmm. um, changing things around, messing things up. Tell me about the space that you're recording in. Like, how does it facilitate what you do? Like, your studio. Must, obviously, you must have a home studio. It's a big deal. I mean, when I recorded my first record, I was in a really awesome attic that was carpeted and insulated, and I didn't have any external noise. And now I don't really have that anymore. <laughs> so now I have to be really creative about when I'm capturing my sounds. And I have to say, it makes it very difficult. Yeah, but is this like, uh, do you have a room dedicated to it in your house? Yeah, yeah, I mean, right now I'm currently in the dining room in my cottage, and I have to say at first it was like, uh, being in the open and no private room, I have no door to close, I just kind of got over it a little bit, it's kind yeah. of, I think it's a good thing, exercise for people to do their art in an open sphere, you know, not... Yeah. Mm -hmm. People can be very precious about that. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, as musicians on the whole, we want to be conscious of our neighbors and respectful of our of neighbors course, here. Yeah. You know, now you're not playing in like yeah, Megadeth. Like, ah, so ooh, you're man, not I doing that. <laughs> but uh, it's, so it's a little more, you know, if you're kind of, you know, plinking around with a, uh, a ukulele or a mandolin or something, it's a little different. But it's mm -hmm. funny, like I found, I, I'm, I'm just very fortunate. You know, when I've done recording in my apartment, you know, my neighbors will come down when I'm finished and be like, well, why did you stop? You know, which is a rare, mm. rare thing That's because, cool. you know, we've had, you know, good Lord, growing up in high school, playing in rock bands. I don't think there was a house we played in around town, like five members in the band. We would just go from house to house. Like when the cops showed up, just, the next week we'd go to someone else's house and we would just whoa, cycle around and just keep, cycle around town like over the like, course of five weeks. It's like all the drug dealers I have in Highland Park. <laughs> yeah. I was moving around to these different little world so they don't get busted it's a moving target man it's hard it's to hilarious. so the, but there's one funny story the bass player's dad was a well-known lawyer in town and everybody <laughs> like all the cops knew him because he was kind of a, a ball buster lawyer so one well, time we were cool. we were playing at the bass player's house and the cops showed up and ralph the dad you know that at that ralph. point he was in his 50s he came out and told him to go away uh -huh. <laughs> and they did <laughs> we kept playing no, it was, it was, it was a small Christmas. town it was, it was a small town things were different but uh so so in this space though i mean you've got it set up so that it's kind of is it turnkey so that you can just sit down and start messing around yeah yeah it, but it's very deconstructed like i have everything compartment you know everything's just in its own compartment and i just i get it set up and it's easy to put away like i even have a drum set you know i mm -hmm. have an old amazing beautiful 22 inch 50s restored slingerland slingerland kick drum which i love passionately a ludwig 14 by six and a half acrylite snare seven cymbals 
but they're all like tucked away. If you went into my place, you'd be like, wow, how'd you fit all this stuff in here? And it looks so neat and tidy, but I have to construct it, record it and then deconstruct it. But still, you know, not that hard to do. Yeah. So then you're obviously, if you're doing these songs that have multiple instruments on mm-hmm. them, you're playing multiple instruments yeah, yourself. Time, yeah, it's time consuming. Now, did that, because that's something, you know, like Tom Waits has got this adage and he says he likes to play instruments he doesn't know very well because your hands are like old dogs. Mm-hmm. They just go to the same places and do the same things over mm-hmm. and over again. So Man, that's a good quote. So, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, all hail Tom. He's one yeah, of my favorites me ever. Too, yeah. uh, so, but what got you, you, know, you said you, you started with keyboards? That you, that no, was no, your... no. I started with um, alto saxophone and bass clarinet when okay. I was in high school. And um, I studied um, free jazz and jazz music. And, and I studied, basically, I was really enamored with Ornette Coleman and Eric Dolphy and John Zorn. Okay. That was my trilogy back then. And the, But then what got you into the next it just instrument? It's all about like like instruments and music. It's just I devour it. I spit it out and go to the next thing. I just like, I just, I'm so voracious. I just, I just keep learning a new form. And when I tie and I just strangle it by the neck, I just move to the next, the next thing yeah. and just keep moving and moving until I just keep moving forward. But everything leads to another because free jazz went to the European classical music and modern music. And then from there I went back, you know, and everything goes backwards in time for me too. So I always get the new thing and go backwards. Now, do you have any concerns about, like mastering a specific instrument to a certain point, or is it do yeah, you just think, do it enough to get your song in? Well, I read this interview with this Japanese um, sing, uh, Japanese uh, performer who's he's very avant-garde. His name is Keiji Hainu, and um, he's a huge influence of mine. He pretty much changed my life about a year ago. I, it was one of the best performances I've ever seen in my life. And he changed my direction. And I read an interview, and the interview was just like it kind of got me more interested in like really kind of hunkering down and just trying to master an instrument. And right now, I really want to hunker down and fully master um, acoustic slide guitar. That's the one I really, really want to master because there's so many sounds I can get out of it. If I can get a lot of the sounds out of a certain instrument, I'll pre very devoted to it and yeah. just keep just working it. And in, and that's a very, very hard instrument to master, whether you're doing it as a, in an avant-garde yeah. way or if, or even if you're doing it in a traditional way because intonation is something who aren't musicians. They don't mm-hmm. really know exactly what that means. That means, you know, uh, on a keyboard instrument, it's irrelevant because it, mm-hmm. it's once the instrument is tuned, it's there. But on a string instrument, you know, you have every possible gradation between mm-hmm. one pitch to the next. You know, and in, here in Western music, you know, we're based on a half a half step, mm-hmm. semitone scale, 12 notes in an octave, octave being a repeating thing, right? Most mm-hmm. people, I'm, I'm probably already lost some people who aren't musicians, but the math, the way the math works out uh, in with the Western style music, mm-hmm. like some people, mm-hmm. some cultures divide that octave up into 24 yeah, notes like, or oh. to fewer notes, like five notes. Yeah, it gets pretty crazy. You know, every culture is different in the way they approach it. Um, but in the slide guitar, you have every little tiny gradation between mm-hmm. each note. It's a lot of real estate to kind of do different yeah, things. It so, is. That, so if you want to play in tune, you really have, it's the same thing on a violin. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. your, your finger is essentially a slide. It's not a fretted instrument. Mm-hmm. So you have to really devote time. Yeah, to figure out all these different variations. Like I could get a slide to play two strings. I'm just trying to figure out a way to mimic um, blues, like standard blues guitar, but on a slide guitar. So it's like thinking about maybe having a smaller slide or something like that. A partial to, slide, they yeah, call something that. Like, yeah, just get something to figure out a way to do chords. I don't know. It's, it's so interesting and trying to create pizzicato notes and trying not to make it sound like a slide guitar. You know? There's a ring you can buy, I know. Somebody yeah. sells this ring that on one side it's really narrow like a ring, but on the other side it's wider. It might, I think they make one that covers like 
two strings, and I think they even make one that might cover three. Oh, really? So you just, as you're playing, then you can flip it around while you're playing. And like, you know, you can be chording like a normal yeah, guitar yeah, player yeah. on a regular guitar, but then flip that ring around, and now you've got a slide that yeah. does one string, two strings, whatever. Uh, there's all kinds of little cool things you can do. And capos, too. Mm-hmm. Capos, a thing in a guitar you attach to the neck, raises the pitch, and lowering pitch. Now, I noticed this before. Uh, you're doing alternate tunings as well. You're not very, sticking to standard tunings. Mm-hmm, very alternate. Yeah, very much so. Um, I, I just kind of come up with them just experimenting and things like that. But uh, yeah, I don't use any standard types of tunings. Does that make it more frustrating sometimes? It actually makes it a little easier to okay. do something interesting. Like, like for example, like again, taking the slide guitar and trying to make it sound like something else, it's also like the idea of musical forms too. Like trying to create a new form of country or blues music, but in a way where you have the written description and then you interpret it and not, it's not, and not being influenced by the sound, like creating this different, strange alien music by just it's only, by only its description. Yeah. Like Werner Herzog's uh, Strosek, where he went to, where it's basically about a German going to America, but it's a German's perspective of what America is like. So it's very bizarre. So it's like, my interpretation of blues music is going to be very strange and bizarre yeah. from that kind of pedestrian knowledge. Now, tell me about how you approach technology. Now, technology is a very vague concept because at one point, amplifiers mm-hmm. were brand new technology. Yeah, you know, crazy, at one point, tempered tuning was like new technology. Yeah. But now it's it's almost limitless what you can do. Like, how do you, you use computers to, to compose your mm-hmm. music? Yeah, I have a MacBook and I do that. I have an amplifier. It's a custom uh, 12 watt. It's kind of ghetto, but it works really well. And just like a cheap, uh, you know, program. I yeah. use Reaper. <laughs> yeah. So, but you approach it now. This is just another tool for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So there's no judgment whatsoever. There's no point at which I, there's something I like to call technologically Amish. Some people, uh, use technology to a certain point and then they refuse to use it any farther. Like electric guitar technology really hasn't advanced dramatically since say, wow, that's fascinating. 1968, yeah. maybe like nothing really revolutionary just more effects pedals. here and there a couple things you know but the, <laughs> yeah. the basics of what we've been doing has been it's kind of stopped about right there mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. and then but piano piano technology stopped i don't know 1850 maybe i don't know i mean is there anything is there anything you wouldn't use i guess is a different question is it a complete tabula rasa for you is there anything that you wouldn't you would not use to make music to not use i actually i do not like standard guitar okay it's just, I don't know what it is. I, even though I dream of having a Stratocaster and playing Nirvana bar chords and doing some stuff like that. I, I just, that's, I guess it's, I, um, I think that, that instrument, I not, I don't want to say I loathe per se. And since I just think that's, again, it's like one of the reminders of how much we've hit a wall of something, you know? Yeah. Well, we've come to a point in our technology or in our, in our society where, you know, we're, you know, I say this all the time, we're standing on the shoulders of the shoulders of the shoulders of the shoulders of giants. The people who invented mm-hmm. this technology, you know, obviously the way it's changed so much in the last 10 years of how we distribute music has changed drastically. The ability to do the kinds of things we do at home has changed drastically oh, because with the computers and the computer-based, every, everything has mm-hmm. a computer in it now. Uh, so that's changed. But, you know, the way we, I mean, the way we make music maybe hasn't changed. And if you're talking about Schoenberg and you're talking about John Cage and you're talking about these guys, they were doing very experimental things with pretty traditional instruments. Mm-hmm. Like imagine what they'd be doing now with the things that we have now. Or like people always like to say, well, what would Jimi Hendrix be doing now? 
I'd be very curious. You'd be or very... Miles, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. But also, I forgot, wanted to mention, like, the idea that's also gone is the idea of the traditional record, where um, you basically say goodbye to your family, and you're gone for about a year into a little box, and you have to write this music, you know, and then you come back, and you sit, and you got to tour with it. And now there's so much urgency in the music industry. You have to create fast. You have to get it out. You have to make it and release it and go. I mean, there are some artists that take time, but now it's just like, you have to release a record, like what? Two records a year, a record a year. I mean, you got to keep moving this stuff. So why do you bother with making albums? I I'm trying to stop. I'm learning how not to do that anymore. So do you just, would you just then just do digital distribution of like individual songs? Digital digital distribution, and then I would gather um, songs that are, I find acceptable to put onto vinyl and then release vinyl because I'm a huge record freak. And then just go from there. But I, 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 I mean, my girlfriend's like, you don't have to abide by the rules. You know, you should just, you know, do the record thing. Well, I'm like, yeah, that's true. I, I do like to have good quality of stuff that's released, but you got to get it out there quick and you got to get on tour and that's it. You know, everything's yeah. faster. So what have you, what kind of media so far in your career, you know, your X number of years into your career, what have you pressed so far? Media, well, only vinyl and digi downloads. That's it. I only have one, one release on record and then everything else is digital download. But again, that's just that first record. I mean, I'm sitting on a huge pile of song eggs that just need to go out, yeah. you know, need to crack open and be released on like Bandcamp and just go, yeah. just do it. And I have a, a really weird block. I think part of it is, I mean, part what of it's just that? habit. Part of it's habit. Like yeah. our, our society, mm-hmm. our culture, it's based on what it's always done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think part of it is based on the human attention span. Yeah. You know, like I, I still like albums, whether they're 33 minute Van Halen albums or 70 minute Def Leppard albums. And these mm-hmm. are just examples. I'm not yeah, saying sh- either of those bands yeah. are relevant, but just lengths of albums. Like when I say album, like think of it like a photo album. Yeah, people listen to ambient music. And, but it, <laughs> but it's, I think it's easier, more easily digestible in a chunk. Agreed. And that's when I work on people's records. I, I always encourage them, even if they don't list it on the LP or if it's on a CD, for example, you don't have to flip a CD. Mm-hmm. But I try to get them to think about sequencing that album in a sense that it, it makes sense to the human who's consuming it as an album. Because people, you can always cherry pick out songs, boom, 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 mm-hmm, there, and then mm-hmm. play them singles. It's fine. Yeah. You can always do that. But there will be some people who will appreciate that. And sequencing is important, and you do the side A, side B, so that there's like a theme and a tension and resolution, and then kind of a break in the middle, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then you start that second half, and because they're now they're more invested. If they're listening this long, they're really paying attention to what mm-hmm. you're doing. Anyway, I'm talking too much about this kind of stuff. I, I could talk about this stuff all day. So you're talking about like a, a chunk being a larger s- song structure. Yeah, some like sort. a song cycle, of, you know, say cycle. four to five songs per side. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm totally into that. Um, uh, my friend Adam, um, Adam Forkner, who's White Rainbow, he's on Cranky Marriage and all that stuff on those labels. He does ambient music, and now, and he had these huge tracks, epic. He's, a, he's the most brilliant ambient musician ever. But now he's changed things up. Now he's doing beats, and like now he's doing smaller songs, you know. And now I'm going back to smaller songs. Like I love songs that are like two minutes and thirty seconds. Yeah. It's almost like I want to do punk rock music. Yeah. So. Get in, get out. Yeah, but I know that when I do my chamber music, you know, it's it's going to be a chunk. Yeah, you know? and some of it, <laughs> and some of it's based on the idea of performance as well, because yeah, no one goes to see a band. I mean, unless it's some stupid TV show, no one goes to see a band play a single. 
True. Like, why would I go through the Absolutely. trouble of buying tickets? Or if I was selling tickets, why would I go through the trouble of selling tickets mm-hmm. to have a band come out and play one song? It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then you get into the idea of that that's a live representation of what they've been doing in recordings. And mm-hmm, they're going to mix mm-hmm. up their catalog or not. Because the bit's a big deal now to have people go play albums, you know, from start to finish in sequence. Man, that's funny. You're talking about this chunk stuff. Now I'm looking back at some of the ideas I've had for my next record. I had one blank of it being like one track being kind of a chunk. But also, I like the idea of a live performance when people are coming to see you play. I like having a live performance where the songs just bleed into each other. Yeah. And there's no pause. Because I prefer the applause after the show, not during the show. I, yeah. I'm not a big fan. Unless I have to tune, I'm not a fan of people clapping in the middle of the show. I like It's like a, I, every, a show to me is like a recital. I want the clapping to be at the end. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you kind of came out of the classical realm mm-hmm. in that regard. Yeah, where I it's, love it's, that. It's, just, it's a faux pas to clap between the works yeah, of a, of a faux classical work. Anyway, well, I'm talking with Casper Sonnet. We're getting into all kinds of interesting musical topics here. Why don't you play another track for us, man? Because we, we can talk all day, but we're really here to do the music. That's what this is all yeah, about. So what's next? Um, where are all the Watchmen? Okay, tell me just a little bit about this tune. Um, it's a pretty epic song that's on the on the on my first record called Identify on Marriage Records. It's um huge orchestrated type of a song. Um, it's one of the oldest songs that I wrote. I believe it might be the second song I ever wrote, and it just went through a huge process. My friend Jordan Dykstra performs the viola parts on it, and we composed and arranged that together. But it's about um it's kind of a loosely about the movie Logan's Run. It's one of my favorite sci-fi films growing up. I've been always very influenced by dystopia, but it's basically about when it's basically about an old man who is outside of a utopia and and um, it just and warns the youth about how its eventual collapse and how it will not really sustain itself. Somewhat prescient, perhaps. Yeah. All right. So, Casper Sonnet on Independence Day. The song's entitled "Where Are All the Watchmen." <laughs> We get the knees before tying them down. There's no point shape. King of all of their limbs Donning in wagons with yesterday's tears Past their years, Steve. 
Talking with the dawn, 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 dawn. Here, fires they do crumble and trickle fear. Smooth-minded, all are gone, 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 gone. Once again, on Independence Day, that is Casper Sonnet. That is his stage name. His real name is Ruby, actually. Mm-hmm. Somehow they seem kind of incongruous, but it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and I'm Joe Armstrong. Listening, you're listening to Independence Day. www.indepday.com is where you will find this and all the other artists we've had on the show. Uh, getting on towards the end of summer here, and uh, looking forward to seeing some artists come forward. There's some great people that we've been talking with. You're going to hear those before too terribly long. Tonight, Casper Sonnet. Great tune, man. Again, Thanks, man. with the kind of crazy ukulele kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this one was just a solo ukulele version of the record version. So the record version had like huge orchestration. Yeah, no, vi- no viola. So this was that. like, yeah, sorry, I didn't clarify. Um, but uh, yeah, it was very a simple arrangement. So tell me this. What, you know, with this music being so kind of deconstructed and avant-garde, what inspires you? What inspires me? I, I love um, Native American music. I listen to that a lot. I listen to African music, namely from Ethiopia. Um, uh, that really inspires me. Uh, I like a lot of old, I have a lot of old records like Martin Denny and like lounge stuff like that. And like, I just like weird. What about stuff. outside of music though? Like, oh, cause, you know, me you know, not just what inspires you in terms of music, but what in your life, what out there? You know, goes into your brain that makes you think. Well, I gotta, I have to somehow make this into music somehow, or like that the, makes me want to write music. landscapes, um, nature, definitely landscapes. The desert, the desert's a huge influence for me. Um, Joshua Tree, uh, Death Valley, and things like that. I, I those are hugely the, the, yeah, it's the plains, the you know, <laughs> the land. 
And then you came from kind of southern Washington. Area. Yeah, I was I was born in Los Angeles. I was raised a year to be. I was I moved after I was born, basically okay. from Los Angeles to southeastern Washington into the desert. And that's a desert area. The desert People area. Who don't, like when the first time I drove yeah. across Washington State, growing up in the Midwest, like I I just imagine I only only knew Seattle and the coast and the Cascades yeah. and uh, what, what's the other mountain range up there? The oh, there's uh the, yeah oh the gosh. Olympic Olympia Mountains. I don't even. My girlfriend would be very displeased uh. with me because she's from Seattle, but. Uh, all those mountains that are up there. And, but I didn't realize the first time I ever saw tumbleweed in my entire life yeah, I love was driving that. across eastern Washington. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I'd be in the playground, just open hills and watching tumbleweeds move. I have to say, it's really simple. It is the sky and the land. I mean, when I was a boy, I would walk around and just stare at the sky and the this landscapes. And I have to say, that's my hugest influence. I have to say, that's what definitely is a big big part now does an urban landscape inspire you in a different way yeah it does it kind of makes things a little quicker and crunker crunker <laughs> make crunk okay a little more wild you know so do you then when you're looking to get city some more inspiration too. do you get out do you try to like consciously get out of the city for inspiration no, I like i've also like to mention i'd like industrial landscapes too so it's either i go to an industrial area and like groove on that or most of the time I just like to go out in the desert and hike or camp okay. or do something like that. So if you found like a burned out factory in the middle of the desert, that would be like... That'd be, yeah. That'd be golden. That'd be the stuff. That'd be good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now tell me a little bit about, you know, even though you were from Pacific Northwest, it was a desert area. Like you went to high school up there? Uh, yeah, went to high school. Describe yourself in high school. Oh, uh, I've, hmm, um, awkward. Yeah. I, I kind of dressed, you know, in the alternative world. This is the grunge time. So there was grunge. I, you know, I had the cardigan with the hole, you know, so your thumb flips through it, you know, right. wearing purple skater pants. Okay. Didn't skate, didn't do that, and was listening to John Zorn and weird music and was uh, liked by everyone. I had no enemies. Okay. It's yeah. good. And then what, you know, what was the change? You know, what made you decide to come to Los Angeles from where you were before? Um, I, well, with Portland, um, I was there for 13 years and, and it, Portland is a good place to work on your ideas because then you kind of hit a creative ceiling there. The artist, the art world there is no offense to it. It's great, but it's, it can be a little insular and um, you kind of hit a wall and you kind of need to move on. So I felt like I needed to move on and also be with my girlfriend here and just, just go with that. And how did you find, not how did you find Los Angeles physically, we know where it is, but how did you, when you got here, like what effect did it have on you? Like I, 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 I loathed it. I was kind of like Eric Satie because he doesn't like the sun, old um, French composer, friend of Claude Debussy. He hated the sun. Um, but when I got here, I was just like, ah, I was so bright. I was just, I was feeling like I was getting punished by the sun. Okay. It's very strange. It's so everything was so bright. Because most people come here for that specifically. You had to know that was a risk yeah, of coming I mean, to I Los Angeles. I knew it was an element, but the rain never bothered me in Portland. It was just the the environment that did. And it's a small town, you know. You, you kind of like yeah. Thirteen years is a long time in a kind of a smallish area. Yeah. I, I felt like I was just ready to take it to the next level. People of uh, people I know who've been in Austin for a long time kind of warn you about that kind of little eddy. <sighs> Like, you know, you say, you know, hey, Austin's fantastic, but then all of a sudden you're in this like little orbit mm -hmm. and you're in this Austin orbit and it's a good orbit. And there's great Mexican food. The, it's hot. Mm -hmm. The weather, everybody's kind of laid back and everybody's chill, as the kids say. And there's lots of places to play. And there's mm -hmm, lots of studios, mm -hmm. lots of art. But then you're just kind of going in this little circle yeah. around and around and around and around and around and around. And I, I felt that way about Chicago for a while because I'd been there most mm -hmm, of my life mm -hmm. and I just had to go somewhere else. Yeah, LA is like really complex. Like it'll be a hard. It's hard to have your memory 
get imprinted in it because the roads are like huge tentacles and everything's just yeah. like all over the place, but it's still small too. And it's a transient place too, because mm-hmm. even if the place itself doesn't change that terribly much, mm-hmm. there's constantly new characters rolling there's, in and out. Uh, of yeah. Here. And also like new changes to the environment, maybe new buildings or this or that. Yeah. Waiting for the big earthquake to really redo the map for us. Oh yeah. Hmm. <laughs> but now, so are you, are you, are you happy here now? Yeah, I'm finally getting. Um, I I'm I'm saying that things. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm starting to like it, but I try to be very careful about whether or not I like LA or not like LA because um, I, I LA is a, kind of an entity, so I have yeah. to like not say something or else she'll. Um, I it's a she, it'll just sabotage me and slap me in the face. Yeah. So I always have to be very careful about. New that York answer. had an interesting energy when I lived in New York mm-hmm. City in Manhattan, and I learned <laughs> a very very important lesson, which is that you can't fight the energy of a new place when yeah. you go there. Because yeah. if you, you know, especially a place like New York, which moves way faster than LA, <sighs> if you go there and there's this energy that's like rushing past you mm-hmm. and it's, it's overwhelming. And mm-hmm. if you fight it, it will eat you up and destroy you. Mm-hmm. And you'll wind up back in a tumble with your tail between your legs. It's like ayahuasca. But <laughs> if you, this is, this is the scariest part of all. This is one of the most important life lessons I've ever learned. You have to be brave enough to open your heart to that energy. Mm-hmm. It sounds yeah, like do. it sounds kind of hokey, but I think it's true because then once you open your heart to it, then if you if you invest mm-hmm. in that energy, it picks you up and carries you along. It elevates you. Yeah, you do have to surrender. You do have to surrender, and I did some of that, but a lot of it was just it's just when you don't know where you are. Yeah, and you're it's just when I the direction is such a I love getting lost, but not here. And I think people also get hung up on whether or not they do or do not like where they are, and I don't think that matters. I loved Portland too. You I make it a it. thing, you make it an yeah, enemy, and it's it gonna thing. be a problem. You just yeah, kinda you exist or you do if you find what you like about it and you exist. There's a quote that Adam Carolla said that you know, I I don't mind a huge fan or anything, but uh, he was on a podcast. He's um, a funny guy. He's a he's a funny guy. Love that guy, he's great. Um he said that people the problem with LA is that people treat their city like a rental car. You know, they're just like like if you go to Chicago and you tell people like, oh, I hate Chicago. And a lot of people are really proud about being part of Chicago. It'd be like, what the heck? You know, and they'll get like really mad and offended. Whereas in LA, you go like, they're like if you ask them that question, you're like, ah, LA, blah. Everyone feels kind of like, eh, sometimes about LA. And they just like throw garbage out their car and everything's dirty. And I don't know. So people, that just kind of makes sense to me, but I, I think it's changing a little bit, but the division between the rich and the poor is making it difficult for to be stay as a city yeah. with respect. You know, and that's honestly, that's something that's not unique to LA. That's something that is mm-hmm. happening in our culture at large, I think. It's, yeah. it's, and I think it's going to be a bigger problem. Anyway, but we can go, that's, that's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother show. I could do a whole nother <laughs> podcast on that. Anyway, I'm talking to uh, D. Ruben Snyder, also known as Casper Sonnet. That's his stage name. We're having a great conversation here. Uh, we've got about enough time for one more song, I believe. What's this one going to be? This one's called To Live, and it's on acoustic lap steel. Okay, so different instrument. And mm-hmm. why, uh, why did you, you compose this on I this just instrument? Started, yeah, I just started moving on to a new instrument and um, from the, moving on from the ukulele, and uh, I've been loving an instrument passionately. And uh, yeah, it's for that instrument. All right, one more track. The track is To Live, Casper Sonnet on Independence Day. Ha ha, forget about it. I said, I stay biased of them. Ha ha, 
I know better than to be so beat. I am the ghost who haunts these grounds into the sea. Beneath the garbage I will wait for you Whenever you are ready To rise one day Sentence cracks a whip of wicked fire. Oh, have ah, I said I'd stay by yourself then. Casper Sonnet on Independence Day. Drop by his webpage, caspersonnet.com, facebook.com slash caspersonnet, and follow him on Twitter at Casper Sonnet. So great to talk to you, man. I've got one more question Thanks, for you, sir. then i got to kick you out the door. Sure. Uh, 
tell me, why should people listen to your music? Um, because it can just take them to another place, dreamy place. My music's very, I think it's dreamy. I think it's something to listen to when you're driving a car or just want to just chill out or something. I don't know. I, I just want to take people to a different place to tell them a story or something. So something completely yeah. different. Yeah. And you think you succeed at that end? I think from your perspective as the artist who the created music, it, my music to me seems very visual, and I've had other people tell me that. So it's just more like this, just, just taking them on some sort of journey. You know, it's really that simple, I guess. Yeah, man. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to yeah. come out, drag some instruments out, play us some songs. You've got some new records coming out relatively soon, mm-hmm. uh, and people will be able to find those on your website primarily. Correct? Yeah, they find my website or through Bandcamp. Um, it's all Casper Sonnet. Just Google it, and boom. Yeah. Easy iTunes, I'm on iTunes, boom. Easy to find, boom, as, he, as the kids say. Uh, <laughs> so, Casper, man, thank you for coming out. I appreciate it. And uh, Thank you. All right. So thanks to Casper Sonnet, also to the Independence Day staff, Valentino Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and especially Sally Shackleton. The irascible Tony Tonloke Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. As always, for Independence Day, I'm Joe Armstrong. Please be good to one another.